0: So this morning is March 2nd. It is 2008. Our message this morning is called The Cross Over the Crown. If you're writing that down, that's The Cross Over the Crown. I ask you as we begin this morning after worship to turn to Mark 10. We're going to pick up with a familiar story in the 17th verse. As Jesus started on His way a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Sometimes when we talk about these familiar stories, it's easy just to read them and forget that they're human beings. Picture somebody that you know running up to a present-day teacher and falling on their knees. That's an expression of trust, isn't it? It's an expression of admiration, isn't it? As Jesus started on His way, a man ran up to Him and fell on his knees before Him. Good teacher, He asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life in the Jewish mindset is a body that will never die. It is a resurrected body incapable of death, and He wants to know what do I need to do to inherit eternal life. What a profound question. Isn't that the question that every preacher wants somebody to ask them? Isn't that the question that all Christians are waiting for? It's for somebody to look at you and say, well, how do I get saved? I can't help but notice in the next verse, Jesus ignores the question. We've made Christianity sometimes a a sales pitch in the numbers game. In an elevator, convince somebody that they're a sinner. Get them to repeat these words and one more on your tally list. Jesus doesn't even answer the question right away. He says, why do you call me good? He ignored the fact that the man ran up to him, fell on his knees, ignored the fact that the question out of his mouth is the most profound in human existence, and said, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Does this strike you as odd? We believe that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. Why does He seem to protest that someone is calling Him good? I don't want to spend too much time teaching this subject this morning because it's not where we're going, but He's not protesting that the man called Him good. He just wants to know why the guy is calling Him good. Is it because He recognizes the substance of His character? Is it because He sees in Him the attributes of Yahweh God? There is only one in the human race that is good. That's the one whose will was crucified, that we might be saved. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. So if after this statement you continue to think Jesus is good, what are you thinking? Wow, he's the substance of God. You know the commandments. How funny it is that Jesus didn't say, take these off the wall, throw them away. They're obsolete. They're not good anymore. Someone says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus begins with the commandments. You know the commandments, mitzvahs. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not not false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He skipped all of the ones that had to do with man's relationship with God and went straight to man with man. Isn't that interesting? Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Did you hear that? Jesus looked at him and loved him. If your impression of Jesus is the Prozac Jesus, the one that has no emotion, that looks like a little fishing lure on a cross, some kind of cracker white Jesus, who simply walks around life in a state that you cannot relate to, never smiling, never frowning, never angry, never sad, then we've not engaged the text properly because Jesus leaps with joy. Jesus gets angry and turns over tables. Jesus mourns over Jerusalem. Jesus is full of emotion. He even weeps. And this Scripture says that Jesus looked at him And loved him. You know what is interesting about the word love? You've heard all of the tenses of the word love in the Greek language. You've heard how that love can be defined as a pure love. It can be defined as a brotherly love. All of those words. But above all, love is an action verb. Something about the way Jesus looked at this man and was assessing him and what Jesus was doing in that moment was love. You know, none of the other Gospels record that verse but Mark thought it was important. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, He said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow Me. I don't know of a preacher anywhere that consistently would answer a question that says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? By challenging the man's adjectives he used about the preacher. Good preacher. Why do you call me good? Then follow to say, hey, you already know. How do you feel about the commandments? Oh, I've kept all those. Then follow this up by saying, before you are allowed to inherit eternal life, there is something required of you. Have you heard that anywhere in the American Gospel? I've heard some very popular pastors go as far as to say repentance is not necessary for salvation. Really. Jesus requires obedience from this man in an item before he is allowed to follow him. And it's an act of love. How interesting. One thing you like, he said, go sell everything you have. Well, at least Jesus didn't ask very much. Go sell everything you have. That's Cody's Xbox 360. Brandon's Honda Civic. My King Ranch. Yeah. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's faith fell. If his face fell, what was it before? Up, smiling, happy. He approached Jesus with joy. He fell on his feet, fell on his knees at Jesus' feet and said, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Jesus doesn't explain how the man's relationship with God needs to be. There was something that was right with the man. He explains how his relationship needs to be with other men. He says, there's something that you're lacking, son. And he loved him. One idol in his life. Everything that he had. Oh, but that's just that rich young man, isn't it? None of us have things between us and God. He said, before you follow me, you need to settle this question. Another time, Jesus speaking said, the kingdom of God. It's like a merchant who found a pearl in a field and went and sold everything that he had just to obtain that pearl. We have an all or nothing God here. But what Jesus said to him, He said out of love. In the 22nd verse, at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said... (laughs) If I begin teaching on that, we probably will not get where we want to go. Think about this. Somebody that you know goes to a good teacher, falls at their feet expressing desire, intent, some willingness to follow. The teacher says, you can't follow me. You have an idol in your life. And he didn't say it in a mean way. He didn't say it looking for a chance to disqualify him. He truly was telling him what the obstacle between him And following the Father really was. And the man was sad and walked away. What would you do? Let's for a moment pretend you are not the rich young man. You're Jesus for a moment. But not the iconic 2,000-year-old Jesus with the glowing halo over his head that's on Prozac. A human being made of flesh and bone and blood who gets tired, who learns, who gets angry and sad, and he looks at this man and loves him, and then waits for his response, and the man frowns and walks away. How do you feel? Amazing, isn't it? You ever considered Jesus in this scenario? We think about the rich young ruler, and what do you have to give up? We think about the next words how many sermons have been preached on the eye of the needle? Well, the eye of the needle is a small door that a camel could barely pass through. had to get on its knees. Blah, blah, blah. No, the eye of the needle is a euphemism that is actually the eye of a needle. It's almost as if we inherently focus on the wrong things always. This was a difficult thing to ask this young man to do. But it's required of every human being that you give up whatever stands between you and God. And yet, that's not the amazing thing to me about this. The amazing thing about this is that God has so entrusted, so invested in mankind a supernatural power that we forget about, that we don't even consider a spiritual gift or an investment. Free will. See, if I were Jesus in this scenario and I saw a willing follower, I would simply say, Go sell everything you have now. Here, take my hand. I'll drag you there. We'll sell it off together. In fact, when I was first born again, the first few guys that I considered disciples, I went to their house and helped them enforce all of my religious rules. We threw away magazines that I thought were unprofitable. We poured out drinking beverages that I didn't think were beneficial. Forcing the kingdom of God upon them. Never occurred to me before some years ago how much like Constantine that really is. Point of the sword conversion. And God is not like that at all. In fact, you can make the argument that the most powerful force in the universe is not really God. Oh my goodness, somebody's going to put that on the internet and I'll be slandered like other preachers. You can make the argument that it's free will. Because God makes Himself in some ways subject to free will. He seems to only move in your life where you allow Him to move. The way I heard one prophecy in this very church put it is God is a gentleman. And He works in your life not by overwhelming force, but by gentle leading. Could make you have issues with the concept of being driven by a purpose, huh? God's church is willingly led not driven with a bullwhip. As I began to reflect on this, I thought about the power of free will. Jesus did not beg people to follow Him. He didn't even seem to try to persuade them to follow Him. In fact, on at least three occasions that I found this morning, He invited people to lead Him. Can you imagine being hired as a CEO? Refusing to give your credentials when people asked for them and only offering them to the janitorial staff. Then when other executives in powerful positions praised you, you slapped them around. Then at every turn you told somebody, if you don't want to be a part of the company, get out. This is so against uh, the way that we consider anything to be done. It's actually against our very nature. Turn with me to Luke 22 while we're in the Gospels. Do I have your attention this morning? Rarely do we preach such abstract messages, but we'll try to draw it out of the Word for you. I'm a pretty simplistic guy. I want Jesus to tell me what to do so that I can do it. But when I'm forced to take the mirror of the Word and look at my own desires, my own shortcomings, and my own failures, it's much harder for me. What you guys probably see very clearly, I have a difficult time seeing. But as I examine Jesus' leadership style, when I look at His lack of coercion, it makes me re-examine how we get people to do things. Anybody in here ever begged somebody to accept Jesus? Oh, we wouldn't call it begging but you put it in terms that it was hard for him to say no? Find an example of Jesus doing that in the Scripture. I called it soul winning. I can't find Jesus winning souls, though. Interesting. And yet Paul did stand before a ruler and say, I hope very much to persuade you to be what I am, except for these chains. But he was in chains. Not exactly the world's model of soul winning, huh? They'd call that a failure. Are you all in Luke twenty-two? Imagine that your right hand man standing beside you. Think of Peter in those terms. Look at the 24th verse. As also, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered the greatest. <laughs> Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. What are we, by the way? So, Gentile nations are used to doing what with authority? lording it. Now, lording is one of those neat kind of words that I'm not sure anybody knows what it means. Think of it this way. Gentile kings are used to having people under the heels of their foot, under their thumb, pressing on them, forcing them. The motivators that most kingdoms operate under is the point of an M16 or an AK-47 or a Bannet. or the threat of prison. That's how kingdoms are built. Can you think of a single nation that was established without a war? Hmm. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. We have a way of forcing people to do what we want, and then considering ourselves benevolent for doing so. It may be hard for you to see yourself in that light, but certainly you've had a boss you can see in that light, huh? Clean the floor. Boy, I'm only doing this because I want you to be the best employee. Clean the floor. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. The one who rules like the one who serves. My goodness. You mean to tell me that whoever runs ExxonMobil, if ExxonMobil were the kingdom of God, and obviously is not, Whoever that person is, whoever holds the highest title, whoever's business card says the big cheese, got to be just like the one who serves? Tell me that is not a backwards concept. Backwards from what, though? The basic principles of this world, which are coming to nothing? For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? That's a rhetorical question, isn't it? The one who's at the table is it not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trial, and I confer or bestow or present upon you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may be able to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. We have a very backwards principle here if you will refuse to lord authority over people, if instead you will begin to serve them, a kingdom will be present in you. It will be given to you. And you will end up ruling. But how will you come to power? By serving. Simon, Simon. What a transition this is. Simon, Simon. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. <laughs> you're trying to build a movement. You're trying to establish the kingdom of God on earth. And now your chief, Talmudim, your disciple, you're going to give him to Satan to sift. That's interesting, isn't it? In John 6, Jesus' own disciples. are confused and offended. In fact, turn to John 6. Look at the 61st verse. Aware that His disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, who's He speaking to? His own disciples. Does this offend you? many of His disciples turn back and no longer follow Him. What do you do when a church is declining? What do you do when all of a sudden there are more empty seats than full seats? What do you do when your census is down? Do you think there might be a temptation to re-examine the message? Do you think there might be a temptation to look at what creature comforts you're not providing to people? How strange it is that Jesus' response to this is, you want to leave too? Jesus asked the twelve, Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Then he goes on to call one of his own a devil. What a strange contradiction this heavenly human being is. He's called to be a king, but he seems to be ascending in turning people away, never persuading, never begging anyone to follow Him. Can you imagine the patience that it must take to leave within mankind the absolute ability to decide for themselves what to do with God, what to do with His character, what to do with His will, without undue influence. I mean, how easy would it have been for Jesus to say, hey guys, you're starting to doubt me? Look, anybody hungry? Got a fish? How easy would it have been for Jesus to call upon a miracle from the sky or any one of the twelve legions He had at His disposal? And yet there is no coercion in Him. He simply is who He is. Why do you call me good? Only God's good without even explaining that He's God, waiting to see the conclusions that other humans draw from it. That's pretty confident, isn't it? I find in myself I lack those kind of patience. When people don't immediately see whatever my calling is, it's hard for me not to explain it to them. When maybe... Somebody doesn't see that I have the... Have you ever been on a building project and somebody that you've estimated to be less talented than yourself keeps insisting on directing you? <laughs> yeah, I see at least one of you have. What are you immediately tempted to do? Have you ever heard a kid say, they don't know who I am, especially young teenagers. They don't know who they're messing with, right? We have a tendency to want to prove ourselves, don't we? If you're accomplished, if you're a man with many credentials behind your name, is it hard for you if somebody corrects your grammar? If you're great in math, is it hard for you if somebody goes back over your work? We don't like to be scrutinized much, do we? The God of the universe invited the scrutiny of everybody that He went to and then restrained Himself From commenting on it. That's pretty amazing, don't you think? He must have had good reason, though. Good reason to place confidence in all of mankind, right? I mean, man had done so well with the free will they had been given up to this 4,000 years. Never been a rape or a murder. Never been an insurrection. Turns me to Genesis 6. I have spent years marveling at the divinity of Jesus. I want you to understand that. Anybody who misunderstands this kind of message just doesn't know me well enough. I have spent years marveling at the ways in which He is God. And yet recently, I'm absolutely overwhelmed at the ways in which He was a human being. Reading the story of the woman at the well, I can't help but notice Jesus is tired from the journey. And I think about how profound it is that the very power that created the sun in the sky has subjected himself to its power and is now worn out because it's beating down on him. And I think, why? I wouldn't do it. Remind me a little bit of reading that book, Lord of the Flies. The parents are gone. Now the little kids are like gods to themselves. Let's see what they'll do. All kids are basically good, right? Really. Read the book. And God Himself limited His power so that He became subject to His own creation. How weird is that? Sometimes this has become such a neat story to us. In fact, when we read it, think about this from the Gospel account. We go straight from the baby, 8 pounds, 7 ounce baby Jesus in a golden diaper. We go straight from that 13 years forward, to one statement where he said, didn't you know I was about daddy's business? And from that, forward until he was 30. We skip over all of it, don't we? How much time have you spent contemplating what Jesus must have been like as a teenager? I certainly don't intend to be crude. But how much time contemplating Jesus coping with puberty? And yet he surely did. I've heard teachers say Jesus never could have had a blister because He was a perfect sacrifice. What a bunch of hogwash that is. He was a human being. He got cold when it was cold outside. When it rained, don't let this shock you, but He got wet. (laughs) And except when it was the Father's will, if He jumped in water, He sank. He was a human being. How profound then that he's on a boat one time and has to stand up and correct the the creation for trying to swamp the boat. The God who made the wind and the rain and all of those things suddenly was in a place where his life could be in peril. That's pretty ridiculous, isn't it? One of the young people said redonkulous, which just sounds like ridiculous but funnier. My, my, my. You all in Genesis 6? All the reasons that God should have confidence in human beings. We're some 2,400 years. I think that's right. Yeah, about 2,400 years after the flood, after the creation. And we have a flood. God commenting on this flood in Genesis 6, starting in verse 5, says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all of the time. The Lord was grieved that He had made man on the earth, and His heart was filled with pain. You're been in a situation that felt a little bit like a sausage factory I mean all the right ingredients were there but you're being ground up and it was a bloody mess maybe it was a job maybe you hired into a job you thought was wonderful and on the second week you thought my God how can I get out of this if only I didn't have bills to pay what if it's with the same person over and over every time you see uncle Bubba anybody got an uncle Bubba okay Maybe it's Uncle Bubba, and every time you see Uncle Bubba, he tells the same story about when you were two and messed your pants, right? So now you've got your girlfriend, and you're going, and oh, there's Uncle Bubba. What do you do? You turn, go the other way, or prepare them. Uncle Bubba's kind of crazy, right? Now let's say it's the third or fourth time that Uncle Bubba's ruined a date for you. What are you doing every time you see Uncle Bubba? Every time man is given complete, absolute autonomy, the results are not very good. His thoughts are evil all of the time, and it hurts God's heart. So he starts over. How about Genesis 11? Let's move to Genesis 11. In Genesis 6, do you realize what a profound statement it is to say, that on the entire planet there were only eight people that were redeemable? Can you think about that for a minute? On this giant swirling ball of dirt, there are only eight human beings that are even worth rehabilitating. The rest got to go in the garbage. Would you call that a success of free will? Probably not. So now we're in Genesis 11. This after the flood. Ham, Shem, and Japheth are responsible for repopulating the earth. Every human being on the earth at this time has come from either Ham, Shem, or Japheth. They've been given specific instructions. In Genesis 9-1, which I didn't read to, but I'm going to tell you and hope that you can trust me, God says, look, I want you to go from this place, not settle in one place, but spread over all the earth, replenish it, subdue it. It's a re-giving of the first command given to Adam and Eve. But now it's given to three human beings, the the, the three figureheads of every nation on the planet today. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered all over the earth. Here's another triumph of the human free will, isn't it? God says, I want you to go and scatter yourselves over the earth. They assemble in one place to make a name for themselves and not be scattered over the whole earth. Think about this from the perspective of the cross. Looking in the rearview mirror, you say, Oh, wow, we gave man 2,000 years of history, free will, to learn from mistakes, to be able to choose what is right, the whole time sending prophets and powerful people to teach what is right. And the whole planet went down into the tank, and I can only say eight. But I started again with three young boys, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and said, here, we'll do it again. And I give them the same command some 2,000 years from the creation. And what's happening? God Himself has to come down and intervene in human affairs because there is a unified rebellion against Him. He has to scatter them and change their languages. Hmm. turns me to Luke 23. These have become religious stories to us saints, and we need to be careful that 2,000 years of teaching that Jesus was divine, not to take the human element of the incarnation, out of it. I want to remind you that over and over and over, the same charges are leveled against Jesus. Wait a minute. Don't we know his mama and daddy? Isn't he from a little no-account town in northern Israel? Where'd this guy get this kind of wisdom? As John put it. Where'd he learn this stuff without having studied? Without being degreed? Are they stumbling over Jesus' divinity? When they say that, are they stumbling over the fact that he comes and presents himself as God with awe and power? They're stumbling over the fact that he's a human being, aren't they? Isn't what is most difficult for them to accept when you read the account of the gospel is that this guy is anything other than a human being? And yet we have trouble even thinking of him in that capacity, getting hungry, tired, thirsty. Luke 23, you guys know how this story ends. I'm trying to get you to consider what it must have been like to make this choice knowing what human nature was. Then we're going to go examine something. In Luke 23, starting in the third verse, we hear at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry a profound... Direct answer to a direct question. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say. That's as direct as it gets, is it not? Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, you've said it correctly. Put your finger there and turn to the right to John 19. All four Gospels record that there's a sign above Jesus' head, but John 19, 19 goes out of its way to make sure that you understand something. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That must have felt a little bit like an oxymoron to some people. The king couldn't come from Nazareth. He had to come from Bethlehem. Nazareth, what is Nazareth? It's like cut-off Louisiana. It's like Bunky. I got to learn some Texas towns, Matthew. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Is there a problem with him that they think he's divine at the moment? They seem to be going out of their way to label him as a country bumpkin. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written... There is no word for Aramaic in the Greek New Testament. It says in the language of the Jews. Your translators chose the words Aramaic. I personally believe it's Hebrew. The sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. The language of Shem and his descendants, the Semitic languages, are Hebrew. The languages of Ham's descendants, his progeny, are Latin. The languages that come from Japheth and all of the nations that Japheth spawned are Greek-based. There is a sign above Jesus' head in the language of Ham, the language of Shem, and the language of Japheth, all of mankind doing one thing, using their free will to reject Jesus as the anointed one. Rejecting him as anything more than a regular Jewish guy. The master of the universe, this is a quote, by the way, from a guy named Philip Yancey. I haven't loved everything Philip Yancey has done, but I love this verse, this thought, this quote. It It has shaken me. The master of the universe would become its victim. Powerless before a squad of soldiers in a garden, God made Himself weak for one purpose, to let human beings choose freely for themselves what to do with Him. I was uncomfortable when I read it. I said, what do you mean powerless? Jesus had at His disposal twelve legions. Remember Mandy and I chose an email address one time and we put that phrase in it, more than 12 legions. Because then not it feel good to know that Jesus could have squashed them? Don't we love that? But He didn't. He made Himself powerless. And why? Why would you put yourself into a situation knowing that the demonstrated track record is when these guys get a choice, they kill. They do horrible things and then take away all power to do anything about it. Well, Eric, why are we going through all of this? We know that Jesus gave Himself for us. I know you do. I thought that this might put the temptation in a little better light, having set the stage in this way. If you've read the temptation simply as a little swordplay between the devil and Jesus, I don't think we've got its right perspective. I think maybe even in The Temptation as we read it in the next 20 minutes, you might find some ways that your life can improve, some ways that we could become a little more like Jesus. The master of the universe would become its victim, powerless before a squad of soldiers in a garden. God made Himself weak for one purpose, to let human beings choose freely for themselves what to do with Him. Let's go to the temptation story. Let's examine it. Let's look at Jesus' actions and see what can be gleaned. You ever considered in your theological studies why Jesus would have sweat as if it were drops of blood? Oh, I know. We've all heard doctors say it's possible to actually sweat blood, right? I mean, those of us that have grown up in church have heard this covered many different ways. But have you ever considered that what we're calling the agony or the passion, really on a human level, was agony and passion? Something way beyond just physical pain. The gut-wrenching horror of knowing what is about to happen and subjecting yourself to it. Have you ever considered that when you're looking at Jesus who's looking out over Jerusalem mourning because they did not respond to Him. He wanted to mother them like a mother hen would cover her eggs. If she had only recognized the day of her visitation, Jesus said, He is lamenting. We have a hard time even thinking of Him in those lives. We see Him as knowing God's will all of the time, walking around in it, completely detached from the kind of fears doubts, loves, passions that we have. And it it borders almost on blasphemy in people's minds to consider God in a powerless state. And yet, that's the miracle of the Incarnation is it's exactly what He did. That's exactly what Philippians says. If you think about it in those terms, even submitting to a temptation in the first place is amazing in and of itself. God has a reputation And he's putting it on the line. Something he didn't have to do. He was God before. He's the master of the universe. Malak Olam, the ruler, the king of the universe, before he ever does this. So by its nature, to pour himself into a human being and walk around in a bipedal fashion on this ball of dirt, puts something at risk. At the turn of the century in boxing, As it became an interracial affair, boxing was one of the first sports to not be so segregated. There had been a great champion, a white guy, who had retired completely unbeaten. And there was another champion who had risen, one of the first great black champions. They called him Jarring Jack Johnson. Nobody was his equal. And everybody hung on to the hope. But the previous champion, he could beat him. It wouldn't be hard. He could beat him. That great champion had to risk something to step in the ring because he was esteemed greatly before that. But now when he steps in the ring, he risks his entire career and his entire reputation. Think about the temptation in those terms. For God Himself to allow Himself to feel pain, to feel the drawing of the flesh, to feel what other human beings feel, knowing that 100% of the time they failed in it. It's like a heavyweight champion returning and putting his title on the line, isn't it? You in Matthew 4? Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. (laughs) That's just not my calling, you know. Can you imagine what the charismatic zoo would say about this? We all accept it because it's written here we don't have a choice. But how well does it fit in your theology that God would deliberately lead a human being into a place to be sifted and tested in every possible way? What do you hear when you turn on a television or a radio? God wants you
1: blessed. Right?
0: It's when we are in agonizing, heart-wrenching situations, hard-pressed on every side, that we and God finds out where our treasure is. Jesus looked at that rich young ruler who had the perfect power of free will. That all the power in hell cannot stop, can try to influence, but it can't stop it. That God Himself has imposed limitations on Himself not to interfere with. And He loved him, knowing that the vast majority were going to walk away.
1: Hmm.
0: After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, He was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. It is an amazing thing. Most of the truest temptations in our life are not to do something that is overtly evil. In fact, the more wicked the suggestion, the easier it is usually to cast it down, right? I hope none of you have seriously entertained killing anybody today. But it's entirely possible that driving here, you entertain harboring malice in your heart. I hope that none of you have seriously contemplated adultery today. But I'm quite certain that at some point in the last year, all of you have wondered what your life might be like under a different set of circumstances. The worst temptations that we face are not the black and white nuances of good and evil. What Jesus is being asked to do here, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread, it's something that He actually does, in a manner of speaking, many times. How many times did He feed people miraculously? Keep your finger here, turn to John 6. In the foundations class, I know you already got John 6 memorized. But for the rest of us, let's look at John 6. Keep your finger in Matthew 4. John 6. When Jesus, fifth verse, when Jesus looked up and saw a great com- crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where should we buy bread for these people to eat? What's the problem? People are hungry. What are we going to do? He asked this only to test him. Hmm. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered, "8 months wages would not be enough bread for all each one to have a bite." By the way, how this story ends? He fed everybody. Right? So Jesus used miraculous powers to multiply food. And he had it in mind he was going to do that before he ever talked to his disciples. So what is so wrong with the devil telling him, hey, if you're the Son of God, why don't you take that stone right there and make the bread? You're hungry. How natural does it feel sometimes knowing your calling, knowing who you're called to be, to do what feels natural to you? Feed your natural hunger, Jesus. You're hungry. You have a right to it. Your body needs to eat. How about this? Have you ever considered it on this level? Those of you that stretch so far into the secular world that you may have at least heard there was a movie called Gladiator. In that giant coliseum, the Caesars did something to help bolster their kingdom, to show people that they were benevolent, to show people that they had power, power to sustain them. They threw out bread to the crowd. The way Hooters girls shoot t-shirts at hockey games. A way to entertain the crowd. All, All wonder. Look at this! He can do anything! Maybe it's not that Satan was just testing Jesus' ability to deny physical hunger. Maybe he was testing his ability to deny a hunger for power. If you are the Son of God, prove it. How many times have your credentials been questioned? Maybe Mr. Fred shows up on a job having been an engineer for many years and somebody treats him or acts like he doesn't know what he's doing. What might your temptation be? Think about it. If you are the Son of God, and the request in itself is not overtly wrong, Jesus actually does this many times in a manner of speaking. It wasn't a stone, but He used miraculous power to create food. So what would be wrong with it? John 5.19 says, The Son can do nothing by Himself. He only does what He sees His Father in Heaven doing. you know what's wrong with it? God didn't tell Him to do it. Is it a good idea to eat when you're hungry? You can answer me. Is it a good idea to eat when you're hungry? Yes. Not all good ideas
1: are God's
0: ideas. Was it within Jesus' power? Yes. Was it right for Him to do so? No. He had the choice, though. Just like us. Every single time our flesh cries, Feed me! or ambition within us cries, feed me. Show them what you can do. Why be a humble servant? Why do things in secret where nobody can see it? Show them who you are. Show them what you did. Don't you know that they don't know you gave to the building funds? Show them. They need to know how dedicated you are. The devil says all kinds of things. I want to tell you something, though. It is usually not overtly sin because of its action. It's sin because it challenges you to get ahead of God's pace or behind His pace or step out of the leading of the Spirit. He challenges our free will to choose what seems good to us over what God says to do. And in this context, this is a real temptation for Jesus. After all, He is called to be the bread from heaven. And He would say so in one more chapter. He was called to be a life-giving substance for all of Israel. Why not show up a day early and show them what you can do? How would a church justify this? If we don't do it, so many will go to hell. I mean, we have to show them what we did. We have to do this now or else others will go to hell. Jesus never coerced or persuaded people. He simply was what He was and then left the ball in their court to choose Him or not. I don't know about you, saints. If I'm being totally honest, that makes me very uncomfortable. I would like a nudge in the right direction. And if you're the one trying to make the decision, I would like to nudge you. Nick came to me with a question this morning. And I was doing my best because I knew I was preaching on this. Oh well, Nick, it's up to you. But this is what I would do. We are so un—we unco- want to control everything, and the last thing we're in control of is our self. Feed your natural hunger. Feed your hunger for power by proving your ability to do this, just like the Caesars do, called to be a king, Jesus. But the devil found out that Jesus' only real hunger, His only real life-sustaining need was for the Word of God. Every facet of the temptation deal with breaking this rule. Not that it's wrong to do, but it's wrong for you to do in that moment. Look at the next one. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live. On bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I'm not so much hungry for bread or power as I'm hungry for what God wants of me. Wow, that is so easy to say and so hard to do. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. Isn't it amazing how the devil adapts? He didn't approach Him with Scripture at first, but when he saw Scripture was the venue that Jesus liked to deal in, he said, oh, I can do this. Quotes him Psalm 91. Now he misquotes it. Psalm 91 starts about God being your refuge. It finishes with your love for Him, which First John says you only love Him if you do what He says. So the bookends for the passage that, that the devil quotes Jesus have to do with God being your refuge and your actions showing that you love God, but the devil ignores that. Imagine that. You mean that there are people that selectively read Scripture? I had no idea. That's right. That's why there's so many divisions in the church, isn't there? Because some like portions of Scripture, and others don't. And we all claim to be right. He will command His angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? He will expand your tent. He will make you rich. He will bless you. Ignoring the context. Hmm. To begin to think about this, I thought, what is really wrong with this? He is God's. He's God's anointed. And I even began to think, you know, there's a time where this pretty much happens. In a manner of speaking, keep your hand here. Turn with me to Luke 4. Unless you're just too physically worn out to turn in your Bible. Young people, you're a good girl, Rebecca. And my little Elizabeth is a good girl. Luke 4. My goodness, this story follows the temptation. How amazing is that? In the 28th verse of Luke 4, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Jesus talking about having compassion for somebody outside of Israel. Then they got up and drove Him out of the town and took Him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down from the cliff. What are they going to do? They're going to throw him down. See, what you do is you go push somebody off the cliff and throw rocks on them. The rocks killed them and buried them. Very efficient. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Huh. Isn't that kind of what the devil was trying to get him to do? Show your miraculous power. Do something that causes everybody to see that you can't be killed. Didn't he just do that? In fact, the devil tempts you to do it in the same chapter. So what was wrong with it? Hmm. How did Jesus answer him? It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Matthew and I had a very interesting study of the Greek word for test this morning. And we disliked it. So we realized that he was actually quoting, not Greek, but Hebrew. So we went to look at the Hebrew word. And we found wow, that seems so much clearer. Test does not mean test like you do two plus two equals what? Good girl, she listens, four. Test is like you test a sword in battle. Test has to do with a situation usually physical and usually strenuous. Well, how could a man put God in a situation like that? This comes when we try to force God... To rescue us from a situation He didn't put us in. We tried to manipulate God. Force your Father to rescue you from a situation. Wow me with miraculous power. Manipulate the circumstances to show the people what you're capable of so they will revere you. They're in the holy city. Throw Him off the temple. Everybody will see what you can do. It's a little bit like Christians that go... Whichever way I turn, God will bless it. Really? Is that how that works? Then what makes him God to you and not a magic genie if he just blesses whatever you do? How many wishes do you get, by the way, with God? How does that work? Because Jesus did this very thing, and yet it was a temptation that would have robbed him of divinity had he done it same chapter before. So how is it that that works? Our Greek theologians. We're so wise. We can talk about the permissive will of God. We can talk about God's blessing, anything that we do. In fact, sometimes we even say things like, write the check. Just write the check. Write it in trust of God. Write the check. He'll put the money in your account. If that's not putting God to the test, then I know of no better situation that we could use as an analogy. Now, maybe none of you have fallen under that because we rail against it all of the time. But how many times have we done what we wanted to do, called it God, and asked Him to bless it? Hmm. I couldn't help, as we were thinking about this... Actually, let me read you the next one. I don't want to digress too far. We're getting out of town here. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. How many shortcuts to success have you ever been offered? Be rich in a few years. If you just do this, if you lay aside the kingdom of God for a little while... You'll get what you need, then you can go serve in the kingdom of God. How many times have you ever been told that lie? Hey, look, dude, it's just, it's what's easier. It's more efficient. It's a better way. All the worldly wisdom. The thing that strikes me most about this is that he's actually being tempted by his own calling. What is Jesus here to do? Be the king of the world. And what's the devil offering him? Be the king of the world. So what's wrong with it? Hmm. What is wrong with it? Moses. How about Moses? Gotta love Moshe. Moshe is born to deliver Israel. He's drawn out of the waters of humanity. He's snatched from the gods of the Nile so that he can be God's man of power for the hour. He is going to deliver Israel from injustice. Deliver Israel from slavery. He's going to feed them in the desert when nobody else could and lead them to righteousness. So Moses looks up one day and he goes, he's mistreating him. I'm born for this. Goes out and acts. And rather than feeling the shalom of God when he kills the Egyptians, of guilt and condemnation and must wonder about why. This is what I'm here for. Oh, God didn't tell me to do it. Well, let's bury it in the sand and run off. Maybe nobody saw it. Now, saints, that ought to be preaching to you. We are called to accomplish things on the earth for God. But we have to do it in God's way. Satan will always offer you an easier way. He will always offer you a path of least resistance. He will always offer you a shortcut to success. It's what He does. Instant gratification rather than the slow process of waiting on the free will of men. Jesus knew what was in mankind when He went into this temptation. He knew that if He didn't prove Himself in a miraculous and powerful way, He knew that if everybody didn't see Him do things that were amazing like jumping off of the temple, He knew that mankind was going to choose to reject Him. And He didn't just know that because of some omniscience. He knew it because He could see every day when man was given the choice to do good or bad, they chose what was bad. It's been going on since the garden. How many times in our life has our free will been our biggest stumbling block? How many times have you prayed that God him you in? Lord God, if that's not the door you want me to go through, then close that door. Really? So that you just have no free will? Because what God wants is a robot. Because what God wants is somebody who simply gets downloaded the program and walks out the motion. And yes, that's exactly what religion makes people. Little cookie cutter robots running around... Spouting off our points of doctrine, trying to eliminate the gut wrenching agony of seeking God's face, saying, I need your leading. Give me a hint. Give me a clue. Show me somewhere what is right in this situation. And Romans says, as many as are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. And when you get it right, you can say amen, brother. When you get it right, it feels good even if the world is crumbling around you. Because you know that you're different. You know that what you hunger for is God. And it is worth travailing over. It is worth fighting for. Jesus died. He was torn to pieces knowing what was going to happen to give us the right to hear from His Spirit. The thing that I love most about my King is that when offered a crown, a short, easy path to success, just like the Caesars around him, he chose the cross instead. The devil always puts us in a position to receive the crown before the cross. Give me the glory without the suffering. I don't want it to be hard. Tell me the minimum to be saved. Give me the good luck gospel. He always puts us in that position. And God stands back like a gentleman, having empowered you with free will and refuses to interfere, except by other human beings whose whole will is devoted to Him and He will send you little hints. He'll even cause birds to drop food in your way if it will help. But His hand will only extend so far into your free will. I love Calvin. He was brilliant, much smarter than me. But this is the point with which He erred. You see over and over and over, Jesus loving someone, wanting good for them. But He withheld any miraculous powers from making them choose what was good. This is the danger in the Gospel, friends, is that we are all free to reject His will at any moment in our lives, and we often do and don't even recognize it. Then when we get into a horrible position, we point and say, why did God do this to me? I jumped off the temple and my legs are broken. Why did He do this to me?
1: I don't know why.
0: It's complicated. And yet it's no more complicated than what Jesus said in John 5, 19. I can only do that which I see my Father do. We're going to turn to Hebrews and we're going to close. In my describing Jesus' humanity today, I'm not trying to lessen His divinity. I'm uncomfortable with all attempts to explain His nature. 100% God, 100% man, never made sense to me. All of the analogies about water, ice, and steam never made much sense to me. I can tell you that what he is is an absolute paradox. He's absolute restraint, absolute weakness, like any other human being, and yet filled with absolute power. And I find the same paradox at work within me. When I yield to God's Spirit, there is no limit to what can be done through me. In fact, the Scripture says I can do all things through Christ Jesus. When I lean towards my weakness, when I lean towards the sinful nature that is within me, the Scripture says there is nothing good at all found in me. Now, Jesus was sifted and found 100% pure. But He put Himself in a position to be tested so that we could learn from Him. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us. The sin that so easily entangles us. Throw it off! I was in the woods with my son yesterday. Both my sons. And we were standing looking at the Brazos River. And it made me think about the Mississippi River, where I'm from. And when you spoke, you could hear it echo out over the water. And it was one of the first times I really felt like we were having a father-son moment. My boy had his first gun. Sorry if you're not an NRA fan. It's a 22 and a 20 gauge, interchangeable barrels, coolest thing I've ever seen. And we're shooting cans. And I looked down, and about three feet from us maybe four feet, with a water moccasin. Coiled, ready to strike, there the whole time. What a horrible, horrible feeling. Sin has a way of sneaking up on us without even knowing it because we see the opportunity to make bread, to jump off of a building, or to be declared proficient, adequate, and something that is good. And we don't realize that when we try to stretch to exalt ourselves, God, it's incumbent upon God to squish us. It's very hard for us to fight against that nature. In fact, you have to take something like the Word of God, just like Jesus did, or in this case, a 20-gauge shotgun, and you can cut that sin right up into little pieces, can't you, boy? (laughs) Then you never have to worry about running into that sin again. But every bush will have its own. How about that? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, I hope there's no PETA-sensitive people in here. I, I don't like to hurt mammals, but snakes are in a whole different category for me. I don't have any problem. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our trust, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Have you ever wondered what that meant? He hated the shame of the cross. We sing songs about all the beautiful cross. He hated the shame of the cross. But He did it because The cross had to come before the crown. I hate some of the tests. I hate being faced with my weakness, with my failure. I hate having to wait for anything. Not even a pizza. But it is necessary to walk with God. He requires it. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, the crown, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. If you want to be really blessed, go read Hebrews 10:19 through25, but I'm not going to read it to you today because I promised I would close. I want to submit to you an idea. You can go ahead and stand up, we'll pray. The idea is that you were empowered in a way that if a man did it, we'd call it irresponsible. God knows what is in our nature, and yet He gives us the power to choose. Knowing that, knowing that your first inclination is usually wrong, a wise person will invite correction, invite empowerment from on high, invite the influence of an outside objective source. Sometimes that shows up in the way of teachers and preachers. Sometimes it shows up in the way of prophets, and sometimes it is purely the spiritual leading of God's Ruach HaKodesh. But the God's honest truth is we need it, and but for the grace of God, all of us would be failures, Period. We would all be subject to everything that is possible for the flesh to hunger for. But we have found something. We have found a perfect human being who never submitted to that, knowing the cost. And he endured that for us so that we could receive his power, his character, his nature. That means no longer do you have to walk around with a friend. No longer do you have to lash out in anger. No longer do you have to choose what is wrong or expedient. Now we have the strength to choose what is right because His Spirit provides it. And on the other side of your obedience, there is always blessing. On the other side of the cross, there is untold glory. Jesus' name is now above Every name.
1: Pray with me.